very much. Um, I'm going to try it. No, I think I better stand up because I just, just feel a little bit more like I'm doing a job at work if I'm standing up, if I'm sitting down. But uh, uh, Joe has introduced us to our, to our embarrassment. We are good friends with Joe. We love Joe. We really do. And we love Kat. And uh, our hearts are really just so delighted for the opportunity that they have, the way that God has led them to establish a, a, a church plant like this. Um, coming here for the first time this morning, it just reminded me of a church plant that we used to be involved in in, in the Lowfelt in Chiredzi in, uh, in Zimbabwe. And we would go up there periodically and they met on a big farm and it was very much the same thing. The farmers would pull in. It was a very family thing. And they were such, those are such good memories that I have. And uh, obviously a major part of that was actually just the relationships that the people enjoyed with one another. And, and may I encourage you, that's what made people come. It's, it's really not the theology that's going to impress them and say, no, this is the church I've got to come back to. It's the degree to which they are loved and, and, and welcomed into the local church. And when we talk, as you guys who have now put up your hands to commit to being part of this, this plant, is that um, we, we, we see this thing as a bicycle with two wheels. On one hand, we are relationally connected. And on the other hand, we're applying the gifting that God has done for us for the purpose, for, 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 for taking this bicycle forward. And um, it's kind of into that context that I'd like to talk to you this morning. I want to say that um, it's so, it's, I feel privileged to be here the very day that you, that you actually bring folk in and you say, yeah, here we're making this commitment, this is part of this thing. Because I see Christianity, however you look at it, is relationship. You've heard me say this many, many times. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationship. It's not what you own. It's not many, many things. It's not. That's we sometimes make it. It's simply our relationships. Because it's relationships that endure. It's the relationships that satisfy. It's the relationships that have value. And we chase after a whole lot of things that actually cannot satisfy. So the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationship. And God in the salvation that he gives us gives us an opportunity to relate to one another in a unique way. But not with an unrealistic expectation. Please, having made the commitment to be part of this local church, don't expect Joe and Kathy or each other to be perfect. You, like me, are a long way from being perfect, let me tell you. All that we can say is that God sees us differently now because he sees us as sons and that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. And that we are called onto a journey, and we journey together. And when we were praying a little earlier, I just felt this. I'm, I, I have the privilege of being leading a grief share course at Cornerstone. And as you'll appreciate, um, there is much grief around with, with, with COVID and, and so on. And the concept behind that is that it's a journey that people do together. It's grief share. We journey together on this journey from the place of, of uh, mourning to joy. And in a sense, it's something like a local church. You're coming to this place where we're on a journey and we're journeying together and we're journeying from all the brokenness and all the darkness and all the, 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 the inadequacies and, 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 and injuries and, and in the past, but we're journeying towards a glorious future. And we're, we're, we're journeying towards our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
But amazingly, we're journeying with him. He's with us on this journey, and we're with one another. And I think that that's a wonderful thing, that we can journey together. I would hate to try and walk this road on my own. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. So, welcome to you guys. See this as a commitment that you make to one another as much as to this local church. So, what need do I say? I want to talk this morning a little bit about living for the glory of God. And this is the text that I would um, like to, uh, to begin with. Back to paper because these electronics have let me down already. Maybe I've let them down. Living for the glory of God. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the to all in the house. In the same way. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a a scripture we are very, very familiar with. And it's around these things that I want us to to think this morning. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. Walk as children of the light. If, if you're taking notes, that's Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Or 14 and 16. And Ephesians 5, 10. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let your light shine before men that they may give glory to your Father. Let's try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Those are the things that I want to speak about this morning. And I'm speaking on the basis of some assumptions. And the first assumption is, and I think quite correctly so, that I believe that I'm speaking to an audience who know the love of the Father in Christ Jesus, they know, you know him as well as I do. People of faith who can fully identify with the following scripture. And at Cornerstone, we've begun the year with the scripture. And I want to pick up something of that because, and not give it the application that we're kind of giving it in Cornerstone, but apply it to what I'm saying. Giving our works, giving glory to God, and then seeking what pleases God. And maybe just trying to deal with the kind of disconnect because if we're journeying to a, di- to, a, to a destination that is too far distant, well, sometimes we lose a little bit of uh, purposefulness. Sometimes we lose a little bit of sense that we'll ever reach that destination. And sometimes when we make the destination just a little bit too high, then sometimes well, I believe that we may fail to actually live in the fullness of who we are and what we have and actually what it is that we're called to. And it's not that far away. It's not that distance. It's well within our reach because it's a gift that God has given to us. So here's the scripture. I hope I didn't go off track and confusion by saying that, but I'm going to read from 2 Peter, just some verses from, from, from the first, from the first uh, chapter, 
beginning at verse 3. I'm talking too quickly. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power had, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And I want to say nothing more about that verse other than it describes you. This is to who I'm, I'm speaking this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ has indeed set me free from sin and death, and the power of sin is broken in my life. Because I think that that's a good place to start. For me, one of the great discoveries of my, of my faith in Jesus Christ was that the power of sin was broken in my life. Before I made the commitment, in the same sense that you've made a commitment here, before I made the same commitment to Jesus to obey and to follow him, when Barry wanted something, Barry got it. Let me tell you, Barry's passions rose up and they said, this is what we want. And I said, oh, no, not good. Sorry, Barry got what he wanted at the end of the day, usually to my detriment. I couldn't say no to Barry. However, I hadn't been, I hadn't been in a relationship with Jesus long, serving Jesus, and I had a wonderful revelation. I've actually got a moral strength now to confront myself that I never had before. And I'll tell you what, that is one of the wonderful assets of the Christian. It's the wonderful gifts that Christ gives us in our salvation. And this is who you and I are. And it's on that basis, on the basis that we can decide that actually we speak in this way. Because a lot of people will say, oh, I have a free will. I can do this and I can do that. No, you can't. You're a slave to sin. And as long as you're a slave to sin, you are bound. That's not you and I. Okay, so this is the audience to whom I'm speaking. Makes sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. The other assumption is that you, like me, struggle with the tension of keeping my faith and service alive in the free gift of justification by faith in Christ alone, and not of slipping back into the error of self-effort. Perhaps not so much for salvation, but certainly in my efforts to please God. You hear what I'm saying? I'm saying that it is by grace, through faith, that I was born again. Let me tell you, I wasn't looking for the Lord. He came looking for me. I added nothing to this. I was in a wretched place when he saved me. I didn't bring anything then, and I've got actually nothing to add now. But... You've got this justification on, by faith on one hand and the warning that you'll never, never, ever please God by uh, dead works, by works that are your efforts to, to, to please God. But yet, having come to salvation in Christ, we are called to good works that give glory to God. That's a reality. And I think we need to just, just think about that sometimes and just remind ourselves of what it is that we're doing here. Because I can't speak for you, but I can speak for yours truly. So easily, I move from this place of a sense of actually freedom and liberty into a place where I am working my butt off to please God. And it's totally counterproductive and it doesn't work. Because it's got, con it's got contaminated along the way. And I'll explain that co contamination to you as we go on. So, perhaps here's where the confusion arises. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So completely apart from my effort or engagement, I have been saved by grace through faith. Yet the scripture goes on, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those are the two scriptures that underpin what I've just said to you. So these good works can be expected to, I'm asking a question, so can these good works be expected to naturally arise and be present in our lives? Having come to salvation is my realistic expectation that I will live in all the life and fruit and grace of this salvation spontaneously with absolute freedom in the same way as I was brought to salvation. And I would say no. I would say woefully, 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 I'm far short of that. And the reason for it was that when I was born again, I was pretty much the same guy the next day. All that had changed was the way in which God saw me, as I said earlier. And all that had changed was that my sin, the power of sin, had been broken and that I had been given spiritual life. What was atrophied, what was dead, had now been brought to life. So there's a significant change in what's taken place. Behold, a new creation. But let me tell you, habitually, I'm the same old guy that I was the day before and the same old guy who was habitually given to making Barry happy. So there was a lot to learn. It was a journey. And I thank God for those that journeyed with me. I had a friend in my life, Joe, um, Phil Siliers. He was our best man. He was such a brother to me when I was first born again because I was into all sorts of nonsense. And I knew that it was wrong. But I did, didn't change overnight. He came alongside me and slowly we got Barry out of this business and dealt with the gross sin and what have you. Not suggesting for a moment that Barry is not not full of sin, of little dispositional sins and meagerness and meanness, but the big stuff is bit by God's grace being dealt with. And then for my wife meeting me along the way. Forgive me if I'm talking about myself, but I've only got, it's only me that I've got the frame of reference, and it wouldn't be fair to point to Joe and to, to speak about Joe in this way. I believe that there is work to be done, that there is, there is application to be given to my faith. It's one thing being given a gift, it's another taking that gift and giving an application to that gift. And that is my responsibility. I have grandchildren. They were around yesterday. And one of the little ones, Ben, wanted to play chess with me. So we set up the board and uh, we began the process. And Ben, as soon as he conceived of a move, he would move. Oh, I can move my pawn here. And I try and say, Ben, don't move unless there's purpose in that move. Don't move for the sake of moving. Move with purpose. And I'll tell you what, I wish I'd learned that lesson in my Christian life much earlier. I'm not talking about being calculating. I'm not talking about being cunning. I'm not talking about being, being kind of um, over-conscientious. In, there's a lot I just leave to God, and I'll come to that. But actually, I need to be intentional about this. This life, this gift that's given to me, does take an intentional application. We're all good. Yeah. Nobody's shaking your heads. I see nodding, and so I, I, I take it that you've seen that. So, we've said it would be lovely if this uh, salvation would have been such that once um, I'd been forgiven my sins and the new spiritual life bestowed, all thought of living in a way short of the glory of God was removed. But we've said, well, I'm afraid it ain't so. 
So perhaps here's the application here. This will this the second part of that Peter scripture will lead us into some kind of thought of the application. And it goes on. After describing our freedom and who we are in our salvation, he goes on to say, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And it seems like there is a progression here. For if these qualities are yours increasingly, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, he's so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly, richly, richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have we not come into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in our salvation? Absolutely saved. We've been saved by grace through faith. Are we not along a journey of, 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 of this kingdom? Yes, I am being saved. And I'm yet to be saved. It's, it's like three tenses of salvation that we've got to be aware of. We are saved by grace through faith. Just God's gift absolutely without any strings attached. But there is a degree, almost... almost um, what, what, what contradictory truth that says actually there is an application that is required from me. Now, I tell you what, I battle with that, that, that tension, just getting my mind around that confusion sometimes. And I've disappointed myself sometimes, and I've expected too much of myself sometimes. But what I want to do is for us just to try and think it through so that we can, we can get, get a kind of, kind of grasp of what it is that God is saying to us. One of the lovely things I believe about God is he's not, he's not kind of romantic. He doesn't have idealistic expectations of us. He knows who we are. He knows our limitations. And he is more than ready to work, walk with us on this journey from brokenness to joy. To that place of exquisite delight where all that we can see is him. So, those are the two assumptions. The third assumption is that I'm going to have to take a personal responsibility, and I think I've already said this. I'm left with work to do. And that work is not to work on my wife, although with humility, I'm sure she will acknowledge that there's a bit of scope for work to be done there. It's not to work on my boss. It's not to work on my pastor. It's not to work on the injustice of the world. My primary calling is to work on me. Apply this to me. But there's a danger here, because in focusing on that, it becomes something of a reformation of my character that may lead me straight back into good works, as it often does. Let me just say that again, because I think, I think it, is, it is something that we struggle with. I'm saying we've got to take responsibility to give application to our salvation. 
I'm further saying that actually when I take that application and I begin to do that, I'm in such danger of falling back into self-reliance. And that self-reliance is aided and abetted by the fact that I'm still very much work in progress and that my affections are still very much directed in the wrong place. So, we acknowledge that there is a danger that we can become legalistic about our approach to Christianity. We're so wonderfully set free, but how long is it before we become legalistic in the application? And without being pointed, let me tell you, we can see this all around us, all the time. Now, the logical outcome of this is that God expects my life to produce good fruit. Ephesians 5.10, we walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And that's who you are, I want to be. We want to be people who are full of fruit that is light and it's good and, 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 and right and true. We'd be crazy if we didn't. And we try to discern what is pleasing to him. That's our call. We are called to please God. Now, this is where this little disconnect comes for me. This is a lovely, high and noble expectation. But hang on, you've still got one very broken guy here who is still bound by his personality and his fallenness and his sin and all the rest of it actually to be pleasing and perhaps pleasing in other directions. Isn't it odd that all that we can see is the outside? But everything happens on the inside. Biologically, emotionally, spiritually, rationally. We're seeing the outside. But everything else is happening on the inside. So here's another little thing to grapple with. Actually, those works themselves need to be motivated by right motivations. Otherwise, they are liable very quickly to become either barren or bad fruit. So, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear to be beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So that outward you outwardly appear to be, uh, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus spoke that to the to the to the um, Pharisees. I feel that he could very very badly speak to me that very often, because I am very very often more interested in the persona that I project than the reality of who this man really is and all his insecurity and all his frailty. And I don't think it impresses God and it probably doesn't impress, it certainly doesn't impress my wife. I know that for a matter of fact. And it doesn't impress you. In fact, we're a whole lot more canny than we give one another credit for. We can basically see through these things. Basically, let me tell you, we know what's going on in other people's lives. We can identify where their insecurities are. Why? Because we're insecure people ourselves. So, I'm called to live in a way that pleases God first and above all. Now, here's my problem. There's three persons of pleasing. The first person of pleasing is self-pleasing versus self-denial. And calling the crowd to him, 
with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm telling you what you know intuitively when you came to Jesus, that it would require something of putting off the old, putting down the self-seeking man, and begin to, 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 to live for another agenda. To live to obey God. So, there's this matter of self-pleasing versus self-denial. And if any of you tell me this is an easy thing, then please give me your secret. It's not. It's still very hard to say no to Barry. Although I've got the grace, although I've got the power, although sin's domineering control over me has been broken, it is still very, very often to decide in favour of perhaps what Heather wants than what Barry wants, of what's good for my family than what Barry wants, of making a little turn on the way home instead of coming straight home to the wife and the screaming kids. Self-centeredness also has this aspect to it. And that's the habitual one, that I have been so busy pleasing myself all along. Sometimes it's just my habitual response and that I've actually got to think out the situation as to what is being required of me here. What righteousness, what does goodness, what is truth, what does beauty require of me here? And it might be different to what in my, my passions intuitively um, I'm, I'm being led to believe. Are you still with me? There's also, too, the reality that I avoid suffering like the plague. That's who I am. Any thought of suffering is not an, an appealing one to me. Avoiding the inevitable opposition and persecution that will accompany, accompany, accompany any works that will glorify God. But suffering with Jesus adds to the glory that we will receive on the day of judgment. You see, this is Jesus' way. He's quite clear about this. He says, if the master suffered, then it would be crazy to expect that his followers won't suffer in the same way. No, he, he understands that the minute that we stand up for righteousness, the minute that we display any righteousness, it's going to be opposed. The minute that we name the name of Jesus, the rock of offense, we are going to make ourselves a big target. We'll have a big target on our foreheads and a big target on our backs. We know that intuitively. And that is something that causes us a little anxiety. So on one hand, we've got this fear. Thanks, it's... On one hand, we've got this fear of persecution. On the other hand, we have the draw of ease and prosperity. All under the heading of self-pleasing. Wouldn't we all like to be prosperous? Wouldn't we all like to live lives that are without um, complication? Wouldn't it be nice to have more than enough? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to not have to have chase maybe go and face challenges at the school with my children. Wouldn't it be nice, a whole lot of things, wouldn't it be nice if my life was just more simple? I'm looking for that kind of prosperity. And there's a gospel out there that says it, that says, come to Jesus and it's peaches and cream. It's all beautiful, but it's a lie. It's a lie because it's not like that. He did not promise us that. He said, in this world you will have persecution. 
In this world you will have persecution. In this world you will have hardship. But he said, be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. Now these are the realities of Christianity. And these are the realities that we work with in giving application to our Christianity. In the first place, just getting the idea of not slipping into good works. But secondly, as we go to give application to the good works that we've called to, that God has prepared in advance for us to do, and that we, as we will come to, will glorify God, will please God, there is inherent inertia, if not downright resistance, that I've got to overcome by my propensity to, see it, to serve myself. Then we go on beyond that. Perhaps just, just, just one other encouragement while we're on this point. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's from Matthew 5, those Beatitudes. Jesus sat down on that mountain and he gave the kind of kingdom manifesto he spoke about. This is what it's going to be like. And he wasn't afraid to tell them, it's going to come with persecution, guys. You can be sure. You can, you can sit back. I'm your protector. I'm your provider. You can take Lassler in that one. And it's true. He's never let us down. Maybe he let our expectations down, but he's never let us down in reality. He's our protector and he's our provider. But what he doesn't promise is peaches and cream. Yours truly, my big weakness. And Heather recognises very early in me and she's tried to help me with this one because in personality terms she's actually not that extreme in this matter as I am. But let me tell you, I am a people pleaser of note. A people pleaser of note. For me to make everybody happy is what I'm, is really. Now I begin to feel, you Lord, I've got to be glorifying you here. But again, it ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. Because keeping people happy, one, may avert any, any, any persecution or any, any opposition, so I'm dealing with that. But keeping people happy seems to be such a noble... But keeping people happy... If I look at the true motive behind that, is actually the self-glory that I get out of that. This keeping people happy thing, I think, goes back to the matter of self-pleasing and self-glorification and self-absorption and self-focus. Perhaps not always so. And unkindly, if I, may, if I say to you that is true, I think that we do sometimes just please people, just to please people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I can't appeal to altruism as a motive for anything good that I do. You know, when I, when I was at school, I was never the boy that at the end of the year got the prize or the certificate or the plate or whatever it was for altruistic service to the school. Never did. Those were other guys. And usually they had all sorts of little straps on their blazers and academic little stuff here. Wasn't me. Because I'm too imperfect. I'm far too imperfect to be altruistic because as soon as I put the needs of someone else before myself or the needs of an institution or the needs of the school or the needs of my wife and family, little Barry stands up and says, ah, but what about you? You deserve this. You should reward yourself. And that's the message that the world gives us as well. I would complicate it by getting into that, but I'm making two simple points. I'm saying that 
On the way to pleasing God, there are two obstacles that we've got to encounter. The one is that I'm a natural self-pleaser, and the other one is that I could easily be given to pleasing other people, but ultimately the playback is I get something out of it. But yet, that's not the call of Scripture, and Scripture is absolutely, Jesus was totally clear about this. He never ever pretended it was anything other. He, he spoke about pleasing God. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. Not that we have been approved by God, sorry, but, sorry, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The scripture to me kind of infers that when we've been entrusted with the gospel, it's somehow not going to be conducive to pleasing other people. But it's pleasing God. And I think we know that intuitively, that a lot of people, the last thing in the world they want to hear you say is gospel. Even less, this, less, less name the name of Jesus. So, where does that leave us? That leaves us with a nice ideal. That leaves us with a purpose to, to our lives to glorify God. That leaves us with a purpose to live lives that are pleasing to God, to indeed find out what is pleasing to God and the obstacles that I've spoken about. So how do we, how do we connect these two? How do we make this thing clock? And this is the way that I think about it. And, and I'm not even saying to you this is gospel truth. I'm, I'm saying to you this is my experience. This is how, how it's, it's kind of working out and worked out in my life. And this is the kind of advice that... That, that I would give you without, without perhaps too much fear of contradiction. And I'm saying, think about it in these terms. Think about it in the terms that whatever, whatever passions you feel, whatever, whatever desires, whatever motives, well, we're kind of given to think, oh, no, those are meager and those are, those are worldly and those are selfish and those are the things that I ought to be suppressing. And I think in the process, we might be doing ourselves an injustice. Because I think the big picture is that when God made us, he made us well. At the end of creation, after God had done his work of creation, he had a pronouncement on every, every phase of creation was good. When he made man, it was very good. Because the scripture tells us that he made man in his image. And in his image and likeness, he made them. So I, I honestly believe that when God put everything in me that I am, both what I Lord and both what I am ashamed of, those things were put there by God for good. Maybe a silly example, and maybe I shouldn't even say this, but we had a president that let us down rather badly quite recently. God's purpose was not to put a man in a position of authority to ruin the country. God's intention was to put him there for good. And I believe God, having put him there for good, he had the potential to work for good. However... In his brokenness, in his fallenness, in his selfishness, in his self-serving, in his pleasing the Guptas. I don't know what it was. But actually ended up doing a lot of damage. And I think that it can be like that for you and I. But here's the, the, this is the point that I'm making. I'm saying, let's be careful that we don't despise these things. Let's just think rather in terms of actually redirecting them. Let's say that these passions in themselves are like money. They're neutral. They can be used for good, for evil. Like, like, I don't want to pick that one up, but like a cell phone. This is technology. 
highly developed technology, but it is absolutely neutral. You can use it for good, and you do use it for good, but let me tell you, it can be used equally easily for, 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 for evil. And is it, how many scams are you approached with every day through this little device? And you see, I think it's the same way in a lot of the things that perhaps we identify in us as being evil. No, it's just the application. It's the way in which they're coming at us is evil because they've been tainted by the fall, they've been tainted by our self-serving, and they've been tainted by our desire to please for what we get out of it. So I'm saying there is, a, there is an argument made surely for us to be redirecting our passions towards, towards God, towards serving God, towards pleasing God, towards God's glory. It kind of infers that almost in every situation, there, there are kind of two outcomes. Does this one give glory to God? Or is this one actually giving glory to me? And my desire may well be, I would love to get a little bit of glory from this. I would love to tell the guys, oh, you know what, guys? And the Joe invited me to preach at his church this morning. <laughs> so I can say no to that. I can say no to that. I can say no to, to receiving any glory. Because I can say yes to giving that glory to Jesus in the knowledge that actually every little thing that I do like that is capital that I'm sowing into the bank of ultimate reward. And here's a word that I haven't used yet, reward, inheritance. Michael Eaton came to this church a few years ago preaching reward and we all thought he was crazy. He spoke about this crazy thought that actually we could think about ourselves and think about our lives and think about our actions and think about God in a way in which actually we were trimming our sails so that we could get to a place we would receive God's approval, God's reward, and share in His glory. My goodness, sacrilege, you can't think like that. It's never, it's, it's, it, it doesn't sound right. It's not intuitively correct. When Michael spoke to me like this once, I said to him, you know, Michael, my grandmother used to accuse us sometimes of having covered love. You're covered lovers. It's when you go to your granny and you love her for what she's got in her cupboard. <laughs> Isn't it the same thing? He didn't even deign to answer me. Just said, no, it's not like that at all. <laughs> and he's right, you see. Let's get our minds around this one. Is a lot of the glory that we're looking for here. You, you know, we're not too offended by that. Any thought of actually working for God's glory, immediately we bring this wonderful sense of moral righteousness and, oh, no, you can't do that because what you will be doing is you will be serving yourself because you... No, if Jesus didn't say that. So if Jesus didn't say that, why should I say that? Now, can anyone argue with that? Would anyone like to... <laughs> Joe, would you like to debate that with me? No. 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 Clearly Jesus said it. And if Jesus said it, it's good with me. Jesus said it's good with me. I can use the lever of reward. It sounds self-serving, but use the lever of reward to motivate myself, to direct my passions, to actually glorify God, to do good works, His good works that He's prepared in advance for me to do rather than to serve myself. And it might be as simple as whether I visit a life group tonight or I spend the night watching TV. Which of those two will glorify God. But all of those little, little moral decisions 
to glorify God rather than to glorify self actually is capital that I'm sowing into the bank of this inheritance and this reward that I will, that I will ultimately receive. I think there is a little bit of a problem here is that, you know, how do you get to a place from where you have, from a place, I beg your pardon, where you've been so habitually serving yourself to a place where you now are so habitually focused on actually serving God for His glory with the, with the, with the affirmation, with the hope of glory. When I say hope, it's not just wishy-washy hope, it's with the firm hope of reward and glory. Well, I think there may be a little step in the process that also, again, Jesus is unashamed about. And that is, when I was a boy, my grandmother had aspirations that I would be a pianist. And she, played, she paid for me to go for music lessons. There is nothing that I love more than to sit and to listen to a piano concerto. There is nothing that, that, I, that I, I... I just didn't put it this way. I really appreciate a piano that's well played. I would love today to have the ability to sit down on those keys and just tickle away and produce awesome, glorious, wonderful music. I can't do it. And the reason that I can't do it is I didn't stick with the application. I didn't do the exercises. I didn't do my homework. I didn't. I gave up after a while. Now, what would have motivated me to continue along that place to get to somewhere where I feel that I would have loved to have been today? Well, there are a few things. The one could have been this sense of, of, of self-discipline. Mm, that was a bit lacking. And an and ability to be able to see the outcome and be drawn through the hard times by the outcome. That would have been a better one. But here's the one that I'm saying to you, to me, is the most practical thing. My granny said, I would love to you, for you to play the piano well. If I, and she says, I'm going to provide the means. If I just obeyed the woman and gone and did it, and stuck with it, today I would have had a grace, I would have had a, a gift, I would have had a, an, an ability that I don't have. And what let me down? Well, all of those things. But I'm, I'm identifying obedience. I'm saying to you, just plain obedience to God may be the very thing that gets us together with the refocusing. In fact, will help us to refocus on bringing God the glory. Because he's deserving of the glory. And then also, too, for the ultimate reward that we have. Make any sense? It, 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 I, I hope you understand what I'm saying, and I hope what I'm saying is sense. I'm saying to you that this is, this is where I'm at now. In trying, to, in trying to bridge this gap between who I know myself to be, saved, but work in progress, and actually the noble calling of discipling the nations and preaching the gospel and all the rest of it. And for me, I've got to, I've got to close that, that gap. And how do I do it? Well, I do it, well, I'm trying to do it. How I'm applying it is I'm actually looking at what I do to re redirect my passions. What I'm doing is, is applying myself to the obedience of God's word. If God's word is there and it says it, then there's not much to debate. Let's just get on and do it. Because ultimately it brings it out that place where I have the reward and God is glorified. Nearly done. Okay? One last thing. How am I doing? Not too bad, eh, John? One last thing. There is a, an account, I think two accounts in Mark and perhaps Luke, or Matthew and Luke, where 
um, is it James and John? Come to Jesus, or in the one account it says actually their mother that comes to Jesus, and now their expectation is that Jesus is going to become something of a glorious leader. They see him as a worldly leader, but they ask him, when your kingdom comes, expecting the kingdom to come on earth, when your kingdom comes, can I ask something of you? Will you do this for us? Can I catch him out? Get him just to say or do something, and then, ah, but you said that. He said, can I sit in your right and and left hand? And Jesus said, whoa. (laughs) But strangely, what Jesus didn't do, he didn't didn't suggest that they, they were being ignoble in the desire he made two points he says actually I've got a problem with your motive because what you're doing is that you're exalting yourself above above your brothers which I don't like and then he tells the story of how the worldly leaders lorded over the people but that's not in the kingdom that's not how leadership is exerted in the kingdom but the other thing point that he makes is it's only for the father to determine who has that honour so the honour itself is affirmed. It's not denied. It's just the motivation that gets to that honour that becomes the issue for Jesus. And the fact of actually the mechanism, how you get to them, it's the Father that determines who is honoured. So therefore, to my simple mind, that means being close to Jesus and sharing in his glory is the inheritance and is the reward that I'm looking forward to. And I can look at it, oh, like it's a day off, or you know, maybe a movie, or a good meal, it's a lovely restaurant down the road, all of those things, you know, those are good things. You know, those are good things, those are good temporal things. But actually, in internal terms, what is going to be of such value? Of such value. You know, when, 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 Jesus, when Jesus was baptised, and he came up out of the water, this voice came from heaven. This is my dear son, whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. Again, on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my dear son, whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to what he says. Do what he says. Now, that is the affirmation that Jesus received from the Father. And if Jesus received that affirmation, I'm not saying that he, that, he, that, he, that he necessarily needed it, but it was good. It was good affirmation for Jesus. Now, if I'm in Christ, that's the affirmation that is mine. That's the thing. That is the approval that I'm looking forward to. I'm not looking forward to self-approval. I'm not looking forward to Heather's approval or Joe's approval or your approval. I'm looking forward ultimately to hear the approval of the only voice that counts. Barry, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. That's pretty much what I wanted to say to you. I hope I haven't put it across in too complicated a way. I hope this idea of, of, of redirecting our passions is, it, it's, it's not entirely well conceived in my own thinking and I hope I've been able to put it across. The big thing that I'm saying is don't just suppress, 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 deny, deny. Take up your cross certainly, deny yourself absolutely. But, but actually look at those desires, those longings that you have. If you can look at them and express them in a way that is biblically <clears throat> um, approved, then those are the things that... that it's, it's, our, it's our motives that pull us into things. It's our emotions that pull us into things, surely.
I'm ending with this, Joe, this is the last day. <laughs> For many, many years, I sat in positions with men around, around tables in, in those days when I was in commerce. It largely was men. And they prided themselves almost at every meeting that we would have, be it a board meeting or whatever, that the decisions that we make around this table are decisions that are logically conceived and rational and justifiable on the basis of logic. It was never, ever, ever true, or very, very seldom true. Invariably, those decisions were motivated by their passions, by their insecurities, by their selfishness, by their jealousy, by a whole lot of things that had nothing to do with just plain, clear, rational thought. And I'm saying, I, I see that in others and I see it in myself, and I'm not going to fight those things. I'm going to ask those things to help me along this road to live a life, to engage in those good works that glorify God and to come out to that place where I hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, bud. I think just to... It's a lot that you've uh, taken in, lot to work through, which is a good thing. Um, but I think just to, in summary, to summarize what uh, you've shared, uh, I liked what you said that um, we have been saved, justification, we are being saved, sanctification, and that's a process that we are, we are working with. And in that sanctification, we need to look for ways that God has put in us, things that he's put in us, to glorify him. So the passions, the, all those things. That, I mean, God said he's made us, he has made us in his, in his image, like you said. In this uh, sanctification process, we need to look at ways to glorify him. And then ultimately, we will be saved. Glorification. Um, so there is an end result to it. But a there's glorious a work, result. A, absolutely. But there's a work to be done now. And, and I'd add this to it. Be kind to yourself. And be kind to one another. Because we're all work in progress. We're all working this thing out together. Yes. Yeah. And God understands. Amen. So thank you for sharing the word. We appreciate it. Thank you. And God bless. Bless you, buddy.